Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative Oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Santos Rao, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, and Dr. Judith Lacey, a supportive care and integrative oncology physician. With support from the Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined by my friend and mentor, Dr. Mimi Guarneri. Dr. Guarneri is a cardiologist and pioneer in integrative holistic medicine. She's a founder and president of the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine. She serves on the, on the founding board of the American Board of Physician Specialties in Integrative Medicine and serves also as a chair of the Bravewell Clinical Network. She founded the Scripps Center for Integrative Medicine and served as director for 15 years. And in 2014, Dr. Guarneri co-founded Guarneri Integrative Health Incorporated in the Pacific Pearl La Jolla, which is an amazing place. Dr. Guarneri has authored numerous books, including The Heart Speaks, A Cardiologist Reveals the Secret Language of Healing, and 101 Pearls to Awaken Your Healing Potential. She's a frequent speaker and guest on TV and has received numerous awards, including the Bravewell Leadership Award and the Institute for Functional Medicine Linus Pauling Functional Medicine Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2016, San Diego Magazine honored her with the Health and Wellness Pioneer Award. Welcome, Mimi. So, so happy that you could join us for this uh, podcast today. you know, Mimi and I are, are friends, and you're definitely one of my first uh, mentors when we worked together at Scripps and um, really helped me get started on my uh, on my journey in integrative medicine, now integrative oncology. So I, I first want to thank you for, for joining us and for everything you've meant to my career and my life, and, and also just uh, what you've meant to not only your patients, but all the other people who've you know, followed in your footsteps um, in, in this field, you know, as a trailblazer. Um, so h- how are you, first of all? I- I'm well, thank you. Thank you for asking, especially coming off of the year we came off of, right? <laughs> it's been one heck of a year, I one know. One heck of a year, exactly. How have you guys been, um, you know, in terms of your practice and stuff, do you feel like... Um, have you been doing a lot of uh, virtual visits? Have people been coming in? It's been a combination of both. Uh, when the numbers were very high here, for example, after New Year's, California was really spiking. Our hospitals were completely inundated. I had all my patients stay home unless they absolutely had to come out. We did everything virtually. Um, we we uh, turned our parking lot into an open-air clinic because mm. we had to test so many people because uh, we were able to do the rapid tests, the PCR tests. Now we're doing a lot of antibody testing. Um, so uh, that's now things are much more back to quote unquote normal. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you you truly are a trailblazer. You've won many awards and, you know, coming from San Diego, you're, you're kind of a, a cult hero there as well, but beyond San Diego. I want to ask you just, I think that um, for many of us in this field, you know, we all came into medicine uh, with a wish to help people and maybe it's scientific inquiry and interest. And at some point, something clicks where we don't feel like it's complete or maybe we're not complete. When did it click for you that uh, you felt like you wanted to go in a slightly different direction and and kind of forge your own path? Well, you know, it's going back now, I want to say to the late 1990s, you know, I came to uh, Scripps in 1994 from New York City, 
because one of the coronary stents was pioneered at Scripps Clinic by Richard Schatz, called the Palmer Schatz stent. So I was at NYU at the time and decided I wanted to do interventional cardiology. So I came over to Scripps for a year to work with Paul Tierstein and Richard Schatz. And so my whole life was really about opening arteries that had already closed and um, doing devices, stenting, rotational atherectomy, angioplasty. And I'll never forget, one day I opened the door, and I think I wrote about this in my book, The Heart Speaks, and there's this guy standing there, introduces himself, Dean Ornish. And I, of course, had no clue who he was because that wasn't my paradigm. And he said, I'd like you to do a research study. I'd like you to take the people you can't stent, really sick people. He said, and I'd like you to teach them a vegetarian diet, yoga and meditation, have them exercise. I thought, okay, you have the wrong person. Uh, that, uh, that's not what I'm trained to do. I'm an interventional cardiologist. Uh, but less luck would have it, uh, Paul Tierstein, my mentor uh, at the time, he's, he's really a visionary. And he said to me, no, I think you should do this research. And I said, but I don't know anything about vegetarian diet, yoga, and meditation. Well, he said, you'll learn it. And so, you know, I went on this steep learning curve. I became a vegetarian in a week uh, because I felt like, how could I teach this to patients? if I wasn't living it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I participated in everything. We created this, or this Ornish research site over at Scripps and the patients went to yoga, I went to yoga, the patients were exercising, I was there watching them, but I was also exercising with them. And, uh, and I, re I watched over the course of a year how cardiovascular disease can be transformed. We had people, and you can imagine who signed up for this for a year, people who were told, get your affairs in order. We had people that were told, you're too sick for bypass, you're too sick for an angioplasty. And, you know, it was the early days of stenting. The equipment wasn't as good as it is today. And after a year, you know, we had a 91% reduction in chest pain. We had improvement on people's PET scans, uh, nucleus scans of the heart. And I just watched people blossom. It was just so beautiful to watch people coming in frightened, sick, overweight, diabetic. And by the end of the year, I kid you not, they were like lean, mean fighting machines, wow. you know, and, and with open hearts talking about things that were important and looking at what mattered most in life. And I looked at this whole program and I remember our nurse, Rowney, uh, when the research was coming to a close, we sort of said, we can't let this go. We have to keep doing this work. And that, um, and that's really was transformative for me because in medical school, as you know, we never learn about nutrition, mind-body medicine, lifestyle medicine, maybe a little better now, but certainly when I went to medical school in 84, we we did nothing in this arena. Right. Yeah, and, and I still feel like there's some vestiges from that. I think the newer medical trainees um, are more open and getting more exposure, whereas people, you know, my age, your age, um, there's still some... I don't know. There's there's a, there's a lot of interest, but there's a lot of gaps, knowledge gaps. I think I, I still have conversations with folks about diet and exercise, and you know, there's more openness to acceptance of these things. But there's still a lot of, um, I think, frankly, gaps in knowledge. You know, which I think we're all trying to to fill those gaps. You mentioned your book, um, The Heart Speaks, which is a, a fantastic book. If anybody wants to check it out. And just uh, just getting into that, I think um, one of the things you talk a lot about is the importance of connection to each other. And I think you were talking about it in the context of cardiovascular disease. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you've learned about that science of connection um, and how it how it impacts health and maybe some of the ways that we've found that it does impact health? Yeah, so there's some very interesting research. Uh, which shows that social isolation and loneliness uh, is worse for you physically than smoking 15 cigarettes a day, being obese, or being diabetic. Mm. And when we were doing the lifestyle change program, 
we found that it was the group, the connection of the individuals in the group coming to a cardiac program, you have 10 or 20 new friends, you make a connection. Uh, that was a, this, we call that the secret sauce to the healing, right? So, uh, you know, Sachidananda said that uh, the I in illness is isolation mm-hmm. and the W-E in wellness is we. Mm-hmm. And the research supports that. And I think we're seeing that with the whole COVID pandemic, Yeah, right? No, people not being touched, not being held. You know, we have receptors all over our body for touch and uh, people not connecting with their grandkids, their loved ones. Um, so to me, uh, home alone for the majority of us, is not a good place to be. And that's why uh, the research shows, for example, if you look at elderly people who volunteer, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a whole research around what's called the helper's high. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're helping, you feel good, you're involved, you're doing things. This is powerful medicine, mm-hmm. right? Um, the uh, the research shows that uh, people who volunteer are less likely to complain about their aches and pains, less likely to be depressed, you know, uh, because you're part of something bigger, mm-hmm. right? You're connected to the whole. And I think that's one of, you know, we have had this fragmentation in families, right? Like I'm Italian. I come from a, a large extended family. So growing up, we had grandma in the house and aunts and uncles coming and going. And, you know, Sunday dinner was 25 people. Um, But now people are more siloed, right? Parents are on one coast, children on another coast. Some children come home and there's no grandparent in the house. I really think the loss of those three generational households has broken us down as a culture. Yeah. And you know this from traveling to India and, you know, you mentioned, you know, just being Italian and different types of communities function differently. We, you know, depending on where you live, um, you could be very isolated. And I know just from family members who, who've moved here from India, they kind of miss that. Even though there's so much noise, there's so much hubbub, just being around people and having that constant connection um, has a lot of uh, benefit, you know, health-wise. Um, you talked about this, I think, in, in The Heart Speaks, about some real significant risk, cardiovascular uh, risk, with not with, with being isolated, right? There was a study uh, amongst Italians, if I remember correctly, where um, just moving away from the community increased the risk of heart disease. Uh, that was a uh, Rosetto study. You know, Rosetto was a small town in uh, on the East Coast in Pennsylvania and uh, was just a group of Italians who had come from a similar area in Italy. And the researchers were intrigued because they were doing a lot of things we wouldn't be happy with. They were smoking cigarettes. They were diabetic. They were eating whatever they wanted, you know, they but yet they weren't having heart attacks. And the researchers really thought they were going to go into this town and find that it was something in the water or something. And at the end, they can just conclude that it had to be the three generational households Hmm. and the social connection uh, that they had. Because what they found was as the children began to get older and move away, um, the whole what they call the Rosetta effect fell apart and they began to have heart attacks at the same uh, rate as surrounding areas. It was a breaking up of that three-generational household. Now, of course, at the same time, there was the industrialization of food and everything, but but Rosetto was a pretty unique enclave. Do you have to like your relatives? Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I think we all have some that we like and some that drive us all crazy. Uh, but at the end of the day, as we say, la familia, that's what we say. <laughs> we deal with it. What about heart rate variability? You know, I've come to some of the AIHM conferences and we've talked about it somewhat, but I find that really fascinating, uh, sometimes difficult to explain. But can you tell us a little bit about what heart rate variability has shown and, you know, heart math also 
um, and how how there's actually scientific studies about the influence of, of social connection. You know, it's funny in uh, cardiology, we've known for years that if your heart rate variability is down, you're at an increased risk for cardiovascular events. So uh, heart rate variability is a little bit of change in timing in the beat to beat in, in the heartbeats, the heartbeat variation. And really what it is a reflection of is the autonomic nervous system, mm -hmm. right? So the autonomic nervous system, which has its sympathetic and parasympathetic components and autonomic nervous system flexibility. Uh, and many of our heart patients, for example, uh, their foot is on the gas pedal 24 seven. When someone says to me, describe the personality of someone who has coronary disease, uh, it's almost always intense, you know, what we would call in Ayurvedic medicine, pitta, pitta kind of energy and fire personalities and seeking revenge and trying to get ahead. And, you know, it's so typical. Mm -hmm. And um, so what what happens with a program like HeartMath is not only do you do um, a breathing technique which puts the body into a state of relaxation. For example, the five-second breath, breathe five seconds in, five seconds out. But heart math goes further than that. Heart math asks people to change their thinking, mm -hmm. right? So if you're having a, you know, you know you have to follow your thoughts through the day, right? Are you angry? Are you jealous? Are you whatever it is, or are you happy, joyful, you know, where are you at with your thoughts? And so while you're doing your, what we call a heart centered breath, you uh, begin to think about something you love or appreciate unconditionally for you, it would be your kids, I bet, right? You sure. love those kids and you can probably feel them right now, right? Mm -hmm. I can, mm -hmm. I can feel them for you, you know, that, so and as and and what the research shows is it puts the heart in what we call a much more coherent pattern where there's an increase in the flexibility of the autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And what that does for people is we have a vagus nerve, right, that connects the heart and the brain and that nerve is sending signals back and forth all the time. If we can put our heart into a state of relaxation, uh, we can then start to access parts of our brain that help us to make better decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think the way people can relate to this, you know, when you get really upset or you're fighting with your spouse or everybody's done it and you say something you regret, right? right? Yeah. That, <laughs> that's not your best decision time. Right. <laughs> so uh, what this, this technique helps us to access our the, the great frontal cortex that makes us human, and we can actually uh, come to decision uh, decisions about our problems in a way that's very creative. So when we talk, we say, let's do the heart-focused breath. Let's think about something we appreciate or love. And then let's ask that question that's hard for us to solve, and let's have the heart mm -hmm. answer the question. And and when you when you look at the heart math research, it's just fascinating to me. Um, and people can help other people, believe it or not, to become coherent. That's what I find. I, I it's, it's amazing, and it's in, intuitively it makes sense. But to show something that you know we can really uh, measure, um, it's just fascinating because it really delves into this idea that we all influence each other and. You know, you can you can create, uh, you know, waves of coherence in your workroom and your family, in your home, right? You can just by you being coherent. Mm -hmm. So as you can think about, if you go in to see a patient, right, mm -hmm. and who do you bring into the room? Do you bring in somebody who's frazzled and you know, sort of uh, all over the place, or do you take those five second in, five second out breath, get yourself? what we say grounded and calm, and then uh, you can put your attention on whoever it is that you're with. And before you know it, you'll see a shift in, in how they're feeling. Yeah. Have they done studies on like group meditation and whether 
people are influencing each other, is that more effective than just being on your own? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. They've done studies where they monitor everyone and um, they'll put a couple of people at a table with someone who's not aware that the others are going into a state of coherence. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you see the fourth person or third person go into a state of coherence and you wow. see it on the heart monitor. What's, what's even uh, what's totally fascinating is um, they've taken uh, children with their pets <laughs> and put heart monitors on. And when they come together, their, their heart rate goes completely in sync, which makes sense. Uh, your partner at night when you're sleeping completely in sync. Um, well, you know, I have uh, one of my youngest child who's eight. Uh, anytime that I lie down with him, I literally cannot uh, stay awake. I mean, he just puts me to sleep just by something my heart rate slows or something about the energy. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's just totally obvious to me. Um, I'm going to um, pivot off that. And I wanted to ask you some questions about about spirituality, which is, um, you know, I mean, something very important, but a lot of times we don't really talk about it necessarily in the medical setting. Um, when it comes to health and healing, first of all, what do you think of when you when you discuss spirituality? So when it, I always would, I always want to know where people get their inner strength from. Mm-hmm. So some people will say they're very religious and they have their religious traditions. Um, they pray the rosary or they do their morning contemplation or they chant or whatever it is. Um, I like to know where people are at because that helps for when, especially in your business of oncology, you mm-hmm. know, that really helps when uh, people are challenged with life, life and death situations to really understand. I mean, I've had patients say to me, you know, I'm ready to meet my maker. Mm-hmm. No more, no more chemo, no more this. I, I feel comfortable with this decision, right? Mm-hmm. Um, other people have, are absolutely have no comfort and are terrified, right? So for me, spirituality is just a connection to something that gives meaning and purpose to your life, Mm -hmm. right? And I think many of the spiritual teachings are good for all of us, and they're certainly good for the heart. So you think, what are the spiritual teachings? Love, compassion, tolerance, forgiveness, right? Uh, These are uh, charity. You know, these are all... Things that not only make us feel good, but they're good for others, right? Do you and talk? Do you talk about these things with um, with your patients? I do. Sometimes I do. You know, and I actually love when I have the opportunity to have these discussions because this is the deeper work, and this mm-hmm. is why the Ornish research was so interesting to me. Because in the first three months of the research, everybody was obsessed with what do I eat. You know, can I eat this? Can I eat that? You know, they they was obsessed with the physical body stuff. Mm -hmm. And then when they got that part nailed down, they began asking deeper questions like, you know, what is my purpose in life? If I was to die next year, have I lived? Have I done everything I want to do? How would I spend my next 10 years if I had 10 years to live and so on? Mm -hmm. And so then you start doing that deeper work. And, um, you know, it just depends on someone's comfort level of where they want to go with this. I I always, when someone has no belief system in anything, I, I always feel bad about that because when something goes wrong, there's nothing to hang on to. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. But I think it's also part of our growth as healers is just to open ourselves up and have the conversation. And I always feel like I'm really connecting when um, I can get into some of these kind of conversations. And all of us know that, you know, we've had patients who say it's my time. And then before you know it, they, they die. Um, and, you know, just it's a lot of it is somebody with their own will deciding for themselves what, when they're ready. Um, 
and then helping them figure out, like you said, their purpose is really, really important. Um, the other thing that I talk about sometimes is um, is having a practice, you know, and having, and that can be within somebody's faith. But I try to, I try to tie in some health aspect with their own belief system. And okay, how can we, you know, whether it's reading the Bible or whether it's, you know, praying, um, you know, to Mecca or whatever it is. Uh, I try to tie that in and say, okay, let's build on that, and um, and also, you know, focus a little bit on your regularity, on your sleep cycle, and all these other things. I mean, do you do that also, or how do you, you know, how do you how do you frame it within, you know, a health context as well? Well, you know, I say there's many paths to healing always, right? Um, and there's many paths to spirituality. It's just like you said. Uh, it's sort of like we can say water in the English language and aqua in the Italian language. You know, when you look at all the, the to me, the stem or the root is all the same, mm-hmm. right? It's There's not, I don't think, a religion in the world, for example, that would, would recommend you do something bad, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about love and compassion and, and forgiveness and charity and so on. So... I try to encourage people to find a path toward inner peace. And I, you know, sometimes that means trying a few things like trying transcendental meditation, trying mindfulness, trying yoga, walking in nature, uh, Tai Chi, prayer, contemplative, centering prayer, whatever it is. And then once you find something that resonates with you, to try to go deep with that, Mm. right? Try to take that deep and make a practice of it. So uh, whether if you pick transcendental meditation, you make a commitment that you're going to meditate two times a day for 20 minutes, right? Uh, When we did the Ornish research, we had people, believe it or not, doing yoga and meditation for over an hour a day, Mm. made a commitment to do their structured yoga asanas and their meditation. Um, so whatever it is, I think we need to go deep. And one of my my favorite books is by S. Warren um, on mantra repetition, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just learning simple words that help us to stay focused in the positive. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the most powerful thing we can say over and over is I am, you know, the I am. And, you know, in the spiritual side, we say I I am that I am, right? Mm -hmm. And it's our connection to higher source. But some people, it may be, you know, um, Om Namo Narayani. Someone else, it may be Om Mani Padme Om. Someone else, it might be Allah or Jesus, Prince of Peace. Uh, But using mantra too. Uh, has been shown when you when you got that monkey brain that's worrying all the time. If you can just start focusing on your mantra, mm-hmm. all of a sudden the body goes into a state of relaxation. And we know to heal, we need to sleep, and we need to not be pouring out stress hormones all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, speaking of stress, I mean, you wrote another book called Total Engagement: The Healthcare Practitioner's Guide to Heal Yourself. Um, your patients and your practice. And I think this is becoming a more common conversation. Like you said, when we trained, this was also something we never talked about. We were just asked to work hard. And, you know, if you, if you, you know, struggle, that's your problem. Um, but we're learning that, you know, like you said, we bring ourselves into the practice. And that's something that we share with our patients. What do you feel is going on right now with healthcare practitioners? I mean, I, I hear people say it's either easier or harder than it used to be. I think it's always been a difficult uh, field. Um, for many of us, we kind of absorb some of the uh, stress and uh, energy from our patients. I mean, it's different people process that differently. How, how do you feel we need to find our own purpose and balance in when we're in this field? Right. So I think it's the same as I would say for our patients is that we have to look at our life And we have to ask ourselves, what matters most? What are my core values? What what is what are my uncompromising values? Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Do I just care about money or do I care about my children, my spouse, having a nice home? Uh, do I need to have a 30,000 square foot home or are we okay in a smaller footprint? Do, you know, wh- where am I at? Most physicians, if we just talk about physicians, um, the issue uh, for many physicians is uh, we grew up really abused. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, the culture I came out of was a culture of abuse. I mean, and no one talks about it, right? It's like, I remember my uh, head of cardiology in New York would stand us up in front of the room and ask questions that almost no one in the world can answer and just belittle us and make us feel horrible. And we would start our morning that way. Yeah, (laughs) right, right. I mean, I used to go into that meeting like just sick before I even arrived and, uh, you know, and expected to stay up. Now, now the schedules are a little different, but we were expected to stay up three days uh, in a row and hardly any sleep and, you know, and still be performing and, and, and try to be compassionate, you know, um, uh, I, it, we really came from a tough, tough background. And yeah. I mean, for, for me also, I, I found it very challenging, you know, like I used to meditate, uh, every day, um, until probably second or third year of medical school. And then I had to stop because I just couldn't make it work with the schedule. And it really threw me off for a number of years until I found some kind of balance again. Um, and I can imagine it's not something people talk about, but you know, if you can tell that people aren't aren't balanced, and then you just lose that grounding, I feel like, and then you start forgetting why you why you did this in the first place. And and no one is really there to help you because asking for help when you're a physician, in particular, is uh, you feel like it's you're raised to believe it's a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. Right? We're raised to believe that if we ask for help, we're weak. If we say we're depressed, there's something wrong with us. So what do we end up seeing? We start to see burnout in super high numbers across every specialty. Right? Yeah. We see alcoholism and drug use and all sorts of problems that you know we we're not really talking about because it's you know it's like don't ask, don't tell. Right? I still feel uh, like there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, just in terms of even workplace and just having basic, basic uh, structure to your day where you have time to eat lunch and time to go to the bathroom and, you know, a little chit chat, like just basic stuff. Yeah. And also time to uh, time to say, you know, I need a week. I'm going to take a week off. And no one's I remember in New York when I was training, if you left the hospital, even if all your work was done. Mm And you left like before nine o'clock at night, you were worried that someone was going to accuse you of being, you know, a slacker or (laughs) even if all the work was done, you felt you felt like, oh, no, I can't go home because the culture we were raised in. uh, And 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 we start, I think we started to look at the hospital administration almost like parents. Right. Mm -hmm. Like. If you worked really hard and, you know, your chief of staff always rewarded you and you uh, you made a lot of money for the hospital, you're a, that makes you a good doctor. Right. You know, um, and boy, that's that's. And then when that system doesn't work for you anymore, when, you know, for me, I feel like the system all of a sudden decided to say, hey, you're, you're an employee now. You're not a professional anymore. Mm-hmm. You're you're an employee. We own you. We're going to pay you a salary. We're going to give you six weeks off. Uh, we're going to tell you how low the LDL cholesterol should be. We're going to send you your spreadsheet every month and see if you hit your targets. And we're going to rate you as a physician. Uh, are you a level A, a level B, a level C on your billing? And I think the whole thing is completely distorted. I mean, and, most of us still live in that world. Um, you know, we could talk about that more, but that's that is part of the problem. Um, you do a lot of obviously also in terms of medical education, you know, just speaking of how people are trained now. I want to ask you, you're you're the uh, president of uh, the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine. You guys have a wonderful fellowship. Um, tell us a little bit about the fellowship for for those who are listening. 
And uh, what do you feel like, you know, is going in the right direction with medical education and training? And um, what needs to be improved still? So I think we have a great training for acute care, right? If somebody comes in with chest pain, our wheels are turning, you know, is this an aortic dissection and an MI? Is it a pulmonary embolus? We're great at making a quick differential diagnosis, pull together a treatment or diagnostic tests and come up with a plan. Uh, Where we were not trained is in the whole area of health creation and not trained in prevention. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, when I was trained, I don't know what your experience was, but if you said you were going to go into preventive medicine, that was like, that was like, a joke, right? Yeah. Like, like, it wasn't a real that? field. It wasn't a real right. field back then. It, it was like medicine's stepchild, you know? <laughs> it's like not even, and no respect. I mean, just crazy when you think about it. So uh, I, I have spent my, so many years now, really trying to fill in the gaps with what I didn't learn in medical school. So what didn't I learn? I didn't learn nutrition. I didn't learn the evidence-based use of nutraceuticals. I really didn't learn mind-body medicine. I learned nothing about what we talked about earlier, yoga, I mean, meditation. You know, there's a 48% reduction in heart attack, stroke, and sudden death with meditation, TM meditation. Uh, I didn't learn about the global healing traditions, right? I only thought there was Western medicine. Mm -hmm. Right. I thought like acupuncture, traditional Chinese medicine, that was some woo-woo thing over there. And Ayurvedic medicine was some woo-woo thing somewhere else. Uh, my toolbox was made of drugs and stents and these things. So uh, for me, integrative medicine and for those clinicians that want to transform the way their practice, but also transform one's own life, uh, would be to consider doing a fellowship. We'd love to have people in the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine Fellowship. It's 1,000 hours. It's really about self-care as well as um, learning all the global healing traditions and when to use these in your practice or how to refer and how we can work together. And one of the reasons clinicians don't talk about spirituality, where in your training did anyone ever make you comfortable about talking about spirituality? Or talking about death. I mean, we never, I didn't have in the 80s any hospice was like, oh, that's something over there, but no training on how to talk about end of life and uh, all of these issues. And certainly no training in the global healing traditions, whether it's Ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine, naturopathic medicine, a chiropractic, um, absolutely zero training in any of these. And Really, there's a rich world out there. Yeah, I still uh, feel like there's a lot of work to do in terms of where each of these uh, partners play a role. You know, because in Arizona, for example, we have a lot of naturopathic physicians. That's not always the case everywhere. But figuring out how we bring people together and uh, how we can use the expertise in a, in a kind of a somewhat coordinated way where we're using the best of everybody's knowledge and bringing these things together for the patient's benefit. I still feel like, you know, right now it's kind of like the patient driving a lot of that, you know? Right. And I think that um, if we don't train together, right, we're never going to work together. Like who do you work the best with in your conventional training? Nurses. Why do you work the best with nurses? Because from day one, when you came on the floor, The nurse was there, most likely telling you what to do because you just came out of medical school and your first two years of medical school and you had no clue. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I remember that very clearly. Uh, Imagine if you came out and there was an acupuncturist on the floor, the traditional Chinese medicine doc, and the chiropractor came by and adjusted people, been in bed for three weeks, you know, in the ICU. Uh, Wow, you would start to learn the value of all these global healing traditions together. So and you would start to see this. So you know? speaking of that, how do you see how we can include uh, medical training uh, in integrative medicine? What do you see? Is that expanding rapidly? Is it going to be, since now there are a lot of traditional Chinese or acupuncturists and cancer centers, for example, do you think it's just by exposure 
or is this starting to get more and more, um, you know, uh, a big part of medical and, and residency training? I think it's more and more, right? So we have a lot of members of the academic consortium that have training programs, uh, particularly in family practice programs for integrative health and medicine. Uh, So it's changing in that way. The reason I like the fellowship with the academy is because it's interprofessional. It's not just all MDs, it's MDs, nurse practitioners, chiropractors, and so on. Uh, So Uh, I think we have to work together. You know, in Western medicine, we live in silos, right? We call them ologies. You're oncology, I'm cardiology. Somebody else is gastroenterology. And what has happened? Everything has become fragmented. Patients go from ology to ology. They get a bunch of tests from everybody. Everybody gives them a different prescription. You know, in the old days, there used to be a quarterback called the family practice doc, Mm -hmm. right? Who'd get the information from the specialist and, you know, sort of sort through things. We lost that completely Mm -hmm. right now. And our therapeutic order has gotten completely messed up. You know, my back hurts. Instead of saying, let me have some massage and acupuncture, we go right to the orthopedic surgeon and the MRI, right? Absolutely. Right. So, so these, these silos, but the same can happen in integrative health and medicine. You can have a silo of traditional Chinese medicine, naturopathic doctor, chiropractor, everybody working in their little areas and no one communicating and really exchanging. And that's what I love. Like our practice in La Jolla, other practices around the country, we're all working together and everyone should work within their scope of practice. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm not trained to put in acupuncture needles or, mm-hmm. or do a chiropractic adjustment, but I'm certainly trained to know when it could be helpful. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you know, that's so, that's what I think we need that interprofessional training and the breaking down of the silos so that we're all training together, working together. And most importantly, respecting each other. I think that's a great point. Well, let's do a little crossover work because you're a cardiologist and I am a medical oncologist. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, there's a increased frequency of heart disease in cancer patients. You know, breast cancer patients, I know, die most frequently from heart disease. We know uh, prostate cancer patients on hormonal therapy, for example, um, have much higher risk of heart disease, et cetera. Do we know why? I mean, just focusing on breast cancer, let's start there. Do we know why um, these cancer patients have a higher risk of heart disease other than their treatment and if they're on an anthracycline or something else? Well, I think a lot of it does revolve. So, well, I think a lot of it does revolve around treatment. That's the obvious, right? So you take an anthracycline, we have to worry about cardiomyopathy and be proactive with CoQ10 and beta blockers and things like that. Or you have radiation to your chest. Remember the old Hodgkin's treatments. And Mm -hmm. then I see people 35 years later with coronary disease from radiation therapy. Um, I think we have to look at some of the common final pathways of disease. And I think it's really all about inflammation, oxidative stress, immune dysfunction. Uh, And so when you start to think about that, you begin to realize all of these things are just labels, right? When you look at a study like the HALE study, where they studied uh, Mediterranean diet, it was as good for the heart as it was for cancer. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. When you look at Ornish's research on Gleason 6 prostate cancer, down-regulating cancer genes through lifestyle, right? And the same research basically being done in the in the heart. So I think a lot of these final common pathways uh contribute. So if you're smoking cigarettes, obviously that's an easy one. You know, you're gonna get heart disease and you're gonna get lung cancer or, or or some other mouth cancer and so on. So I think, you know, a lot of the the risk factors are very similar. In an esoteric sense, we can go more esoteric and you can say, okay, let's talk about the heart and let's talk about energetically the heart chakra, mm-hmm. right? Um, so the heart chakra is surrounded by lungs and heart and breast in women. And very if, 
if you want to get really creative and a little bit more esoteric, you talk to your breast cancer patients and you talk to them about broken heart, mm-hmm. right? And you talk to your heart patients about broken heart. And you're going to find stories there that, that will just shock you. Hmm. And you'll say, oh, my goodness, I never thought uh, in this way hmm. before. Fascinating. You know, we say your biography, right, your life becomes your biology. Yeah. yeah. I think that we still don't understand a lot of that stuff. We part- don't. And it, yeah. it's fascinating to me. And you have to just get to know people. I mean, we have to take the time to ask these questions about who our, who our patients are and, you know, maybe how they got there. I, I want to um, I want to close on a topic that's uh, I know close to you, and that's your sense of community and really international activism. I mean, you're one of the more engaged people I, I've ever met on trying to make a difference around the world. Um, I want to give you a chance to talk about the Miraglo Foundation and uh, maybe how you got inspired and what you're working on, and also some of the other philanthropic work that you do, including Sarah's Heart. Ah, thank you. Uh, so Miraglow is a foundation that was created by myself and Rowney King to really um, bring health care and education to underserved communities. And um, I know you know that we have been working um, globally and locally. So globally, I think our biggest project has been our project in southern India. Mm-hmm where we started in a very impoverished area serving 58 villages with a small one-room clinic that has now become a multi-building hospital site with everything now from oncology to you know, cardiovascular surgery and cath labs. And I, and I didn't do this alone. As, as we say, it takes a village. Uh, but I've been uh, very, very much involved in healthcare in southern India. More recently, I've gotten uh, our programs because of COVID, uh, our children's programs have suffered enormously because all this, our schools, we have schools from uh, kindergarten to 12th grade. And then those, then we provide scholarships for village children to be able to go to nursing school or go to become a teacher or engineer or medical school. Uh, because the schools have been shut down for the past year, the teachers haven't been paid for a year. Hmm. And uh, the children are, and the teachers are trying to do online learning, but how do you do online learning if you don't have electricity, you don't have computers, you just, you don't have the resources. So actually right now, uh, we're in the process of raising $350,000 to transform the whole educational system for, that we have in, in our in our area of Southern India for over 2,000 students hmm. uh, so that their education is not disturbed. Uh, so if anybody has a sweet spot for children and education, and would love to talk about that, um, it's the Miraglow Foundation, and we'd be We'd be, we don't take any money for the work we do. A hundred percent goes to programs. And, uh, you know, I, I believe that uh, we are very blessed with what we have. Mm-hmm. You know, we, to those who are given much, much should be expected. And I really believe that. Um, you know, the, the, the other night I was looking at something and I thought, well, do I really need to buy that or I can uh, I was looking at, should I switch my car out because mm-hmm. I wanted a fully electric car? I don't hardly drive anywhere. <laughs> you know, I thought, no, that money could be better used to do so, to do good mm-hmm. than instead of my having a fully electric car in the driveway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll stay with my hybrid right now. So sometimes we have to make some decisions um, uh, that that I believe uh, can transform the life of another individual. And that's really what Miraglow is about, is how can we um, give people a step up? This is not a handout. This is an opportunity. And uh, many, many children, particularly in rural villages of India, don't have even the simple opportunity of an education, which should be a right, just like healthcare should be a right, right? Absolutely. 
house over your roof over your head should be. It's all a human right. So when did you, you know, you're so busy. I mean, you've done so much. Um, and it's clear to me that you're so connected to your purpose, you know, with all that we talked about. I mean, you're just a great example of bringing this together and still being, uh, you know, uh great at what you do and you, you you seem to do everything everything well when did when did this speak to you you know I, I know you've gone to India how did that happen where you just your heart told you that you needed to give back in this way because I think many of us uh, give what we can but maybe haven't really um, found exactly what we feel like doing or maybe haven't taken that next step to really start our own you know, uh, organization or give in that way. How did it happen where you said, you know what, screw it, I need to do more? Well, you know, we were invited to go to southern India to quote unquote build a hospital by a friend of ours, Dr. Bud Rickey, who's a psychiatrist and a neurologist. And he said, they need some help. And he said, I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, I can't really advise on um, medical things, you know, ICU and that kind of thing. And I thought, well, I don't know how we can help, but we went. And uh, it's all around a spiritual community, around the Sri Narayani ashram mm -hmm. in southern India. And so we went, and I have to be honest with you, we went to this land that looked like it was so arid, so dry, sticks and stones, and this was supposed to going to be our hospital site. And I said, oh, my God, how are we going to pull this off? How, how is this even going to be possible? And I remember the, the spiritual teacher there, uh, Shaktiyama, said, oh, don't worry, it's already blessed. And I thought, well, I have to go on that. Don't worry, it's already blessed. And, and of course, uh, it, it just rose uh, up. So I made a decision. I thought, I can give little bits of money here and there and there, or I can really work to see something come to fruition. You know, you don't always have to give money. You can give your time. Mm -hmm. uh, you can talk to people about programs. Um, like right now, I'm trying to raise $350,000 for these kids to really stabilize that whole ship. And uh, it doesn't necessarily have to come from me, right? But I can be a catalyst for change. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true for all of us. If we're passionate about something, uh, then we can roll up our sleeves and either we go to work or we uh, give money or we write letters or whatever it is that we can do to contribute. Well, you know, just thank you. Thank you for everything you're doing. And again, thank you for um, inspiring me in so many ways. And, you know, I definitely follow all the things you're doing um, and uh, continue to be inspired. So keep doing what you're doing. And I really appreciate you coming on today and sharing all this with us. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. 